0: Here's another edition of the Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk with Melanie Cole. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, hysterectomy is the second most frequently performed surgical procedure after cesarean section for U.S. women who are of reproductive age. But is a hysterectomy always necessary? My guest today is Dr. Magdi Malad. He's the Chief of Gynecology and Gynecologic Surgery in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Dr. Malad, first tell the listeners, what is a hysterectomy?
1: Well, good afternoon. Um, Yeah, so hysterectomy is uh, a surgical procedure to remove the uterus. Uh, It's separating the attachments of the uterus from uh, the tissue nearby. Oftentimes it's combined with removing the cervix. So the cervix is the sort of the opening of the uterus uh, at the top of the vagina. If you remove the cervix and the uterus, we call that a total hysterectomy. If we leave the cervix behind, we call that a partial hysterectomy or a subtotal hysterectomy. Oftentimes with hysterectomy, um, we also remove the fallopian tubes. We think that maybe up to about a third of the time, um, the ovarian cancer can arise from the fallopian tubes. And so if hysterectomy really is necessary, we often will take the fallopian tubes.
0: What are some of the most common conditions that women might suffer from that might require the discussion of hysterectomy in the first place?
1: certainly, yeah. The most common reason probably would be um, abnormal bleeding or uterine fibroids, um, pelvic pain, endometriosis, ovarian cysts. Those are sort of typical non-cancerous conditions that um, may lead to a discussion about hysterectomy. Obviously, there's the whole issue of cancer, um, cervical cancer or changes in the cervix. Uterine cancer would obviously prompt a discussion about hysterectomy, and incontinence also potentially may lead to a discussion about hysterectomy.
0: You mentioned the difference between a hysterectomy and a total hysterectomy, doctor. Why would you do one over the other? Why would you leave the cervix in place for what purpose?
1: Well, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, in, in general, like we. Pref- we try and avoid hysterectomy, but in a patient that um has no other alternatives and that's the that's where they're headed um we can either leave the cervix or take it out in a woman who's uh had always had normal pap smears and there's no cervical uh abnormalities um It is reasonable to leave the cervix behind as far as like a long term goes there's really no evidence that it makes any difference if you leave the cervix or take it out um In general, there probably is a little bit of shorter uh, recovery feeling the cervix because there's no surgical uh, there's no there's no portion of the surgery that takes place in the vagina, so you don't interfere with sort of the nerve supply, the blood supply, the support to the cervix. Um, But long term, there probably is uh, very little difference.
0: Well, thank you for explaining that, because that, that could be a source of confusion. So why would a woman seek alternatives to hysterectomy? Speak a little bit about some of the long-term consequences or the risk of an unnecessary hysterectomy.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, Uh, whether it's necessary or unnecessary, the uh, hysterectomy definitely carries with it risk. It's a major major operation, whether the surgery is done as a vaginal hysterectomy where all of the incisions are done uh, internally or whether it's laparoscopic or robotic with these small little incisions Or whether it's an open surgery, sort of like through a bikini cut incision, um, no matter how it's done, there's definitely the risks, the short-term risks of uh, bowel injury, bladder injury, um, injury to the ureters, which are the tubes that go to the bladder from the kidneys. Uh, There's the risk of infection. Uh, The bigger the incision, the more likely there's a risk of uh, infection of the incision. Risk of bleeding. Transfusion is rare for a hysterectomy, but nevertheless, there is the risk So, yeah, in general, we really try and avoid surgery, Um, and when we do surgery, we try and avoid hysterectomy unless it's absolutely necessary. Then
0: tell us about some alternatives for some of these conditions we've discussed a little bit, alternatives to hysterectomy for fibroids or abnormal uterine bleeding, as you mentioned, endometriosis or pelvic pain. Speak about what you would tell a woman if they are looking at some of these alternatives.
1: Sure. Well, there's there's a whole host of options, and now more than ever. So we have hormonal options, whether it's birth control pills that have both estrogen and progesterone. There's progesterone-only pills. There's uh, um, the IUD, which is a very excellent way to control bleeding in women that have uh, abnormal bleeding or uh, bleeding related to fibroids. There's the um, injections uh, we can give... uh, Lupron, Cineril, Zolidex are all um, hormonal therapies that will shrink fibroids. We now have a new drug on the market called uh, Alagolix, which uh, is a pill that can also stop bleeding and help with uh, pain. There's uh, uterine fibroid embolization, which has been around for now 20 years. At Northwestern, we've done uh, over 8,000 uterine fibroid embolizations as a way to shrink fibroids non-hormonally and get most women are quite happy with it. Uh, We also have uh, MRI-guided high-frequency ultrasound, which is sort of like a way to microwave the inner portion of the fibroids and help shrink them. Excessa is a non-hysterectomy alternative to uh, vaporize the fibroids laparoscopically. And of course, we can also just remove the fibroids. Oftentimes, we can do that either vaginally with a hysteroscope, a scope through the cervix, or laparoscopically, get the patient home same day, So lots of choices, lots of options, and really hysterectomy should be sort of the very last option once other things have failed.
0: As far as hormones, and you mentioned Lupron, isn't that used for uh, prostate cancer and different kinds of cancer hormonal therapy?
1: Yes. Uh, Lupron is, uh, has been uh, available uh, for at least 20, 25 years now. It's a injection that can be either given daily, monthly, or every three months. Um, and its cousins are Cineril, which is a nasal spray, and Zoladex, which is a pellet, and now this new drug called uh, Elagolix, which is a pill. But they all function in a very similar fashion, which is to Um, suppress the natural hormones of estrogen, and progesterone, prevent ovulation and uh, sort of render hormonally uh, a more of a menopausal state. So certainly the side effects are menopausal symptoms, things like hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, irritability, blurred vision, headaches, things like that. Most of the time when we put some, uh, when a woman uh, decides to move forward with that sort of a therapy, we'll give them something to sort of help with those symptoms, just a small amount of estrogen and progesterone, we call that add-back therapy. So, in a patient that has symptoms from fibroids, we shrink the fibroids with one of these drugs. We give them just a small amount of estrogen and progesterone to help with their menopausal symptoms, but not enough to stimulate the fibroids from growing.
0: How does a woman decide between all of these choices? that you've given us. And uh, how do you explain to them the different consequences of some of those choices, whether it's an IUD, or hormones, or how do you explain that? How does a woman decide?
1: Yeah, well, you know, nowadays, like, it's really uh, kind of like a shared decision making model. So it's critical to start with the the patient first, ask them, what are their priorities? and That really kind of work back from that. So, I had a patient just earlier, about an hour ago, who she has uh, significant symptoms, but her main concern is that she doesn't want to precipitate her migraine headaches. She does not want to do a, a therapy that's going to make her migraines, her daily migraines, any worse than they currently are. So, yeah, so we work around, like, what is the patient priority? Pain relief, mm-hmm. but not precipitate migraines. Oftentimes, a patient might say, Fertility. That's my number one concern here. Um so we work backwards from that. You know, um we know that myomectomy for patients that have fibroids probably has a better outcome than a uterine fibroid embolization in many cases um um with regards to pregnancy. So we just sort of we 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 prioritize what the patient um uh, feels as important. And then we sort of work back from that. And obviously, in the end, it's really their decision. Like, uh, they're the ones that sort of have to live with the decision. You know, oftentimes they'll say, well, what would you do for your daughter? And, and you know, that, that actually is not really that relevant. Like, it, it has to do with you and what's going on with you and what makes sense for you.
0: What a great point. And if a woman does have to have a hysterectomy, are they done minimally, invasively? And, and have robotics changed this landscape at all?
1: Yeah, for for non-cancer cases, um, nearly, not not all, but like nearly all hysterectomies, we think 80, 90% of hysterectomies could probably be done in a minimally invasive way, whether it's vaginal or laparoscopic or robotic. Uh, The robot really hasn't been a game changer for... Those of us that are like experienced with laparoscopy, the robot's been useful um, in very specific scenarios like cancer cases where they have to remove lymph nodes. But for traditional hysterectomy, it really just adds time, adds cost, adds increased incisions, uh, larger incisions without really changing the kind of ultimate outcome for the patient. So, you know, if if, if if we need to convert a case from an open surgery to a Uh, minimally invasive surgery, the robot can be very helpful. But um, for experienced people doing laparoscopy, most cases we can do that um, is what we call straight stick laparoscopy, conventional laparoscopy with typically two, three, at the most four very tiny incisions um, and outpatient. Like virtually everybody is going home same day after their hysterectomy.
0: Wow. So, Doctor Malad, wrap it up for us with your best advice for women looking for alternatives to hysterectomy. All of these many choices that you've discussed, and and what questions you would like them to ask you when they are looking at some of these alternatives.
1: Sure. I think um, I think first of all, making clear what their priorities are. Um, second of all, if they don't feel like they're getting a good explanation, like they're not being offered all of the options. I think it's critical to like further investigate. It's uh there's no there's no harm in seeing a second somebody for a second opinion or a third opinion. I've had patients who have had eighteen opinions before they finally um you know, got to where they knew was an option but was never offered that. Um you have to be thoughtful about um um, just because one person can't do it, let's say uh, an individual, a physician can't do a certain procedure, doesn't mean that can't be done. It just means that that specific physician can't do it. And so, asking like, who's the expert in the area? What the alternatives would be? Um, how long to give it? So, if you're if you if you're put on a therapy, how long would you give that therapy before moving on to the next one? If something's not working, don't keep doing it, right? But you have to give it a certain amount of time. Sometimes two, three, four months before you really know if it helped or not. And again, hysterectomy should be really the very last thing to discuss at the very bottom of the list um, once you, once many other therapies have failed.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Malad, for joining us today and for sharing your expertise in clearing this up for many women who have heard in the media about hysterectomy and the risks involved and letting us know that there are alternatives and what questions we should ask our providers. Thank you again for joining us. You're listening to Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk. For more information on the latest advances in medicine, please visit nm.org. That's nm.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.